Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Market Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle, joined today by Ian Smith, company's editor. How are you doing, Ian? Not too bad, John. Busy results season at the moment. Yeah, insane. 26 pages. 26 pages, 75 results, tips, etc. A lot of work this week. Bumper issue. It is a big bumper issue. And we've got an ISA special supplement in there as well, which I know you all contributed to. So good work, team. Uh, and Harriet Russell, Sector's Editor. How are you doing, Harriet? Yeah, good. I'm one of the footmen, so pretty tired, but hanging on in there. Yeah, you get used to it after a while. Well, Tiredness yeah. becomes second nature. But, uh, anyway, let's crack on with this week. Busy week on the results front. Busy week on the kind of more general front. Yeah, we're going to talk through, through some of the results that, that have been published this week, some of the 75. We're not going to talk about the feature because the feature is the supplement, which is the ISA guide which is mostly fun recommendations which i am sure they will be talking about on their podcast tomorrow we have some some share recommendations in there which you put together and actually last year's share recommendations did incredibly well yeah yeah how how well did they do okay so we looked at the um the 10 stocks that we picked last year a whopping total return of 28 percent over the 12 months although that had a lot to do with the um rally in the markets but that still compared very favorably to the all shares total return that's including dividends of 24% over that time and actually of all the shares that we picked last year I think it was only Vodafone out of the 10 that delivered a, a loss on that measure whereas having things like Shell in there did incredibly well and benefited from the rally there so yeah with this with this VPS we try and pick reliable longer term I think we were be- uh, very much uh, beneficiaries of market timing in terms of those stats but it's definitely about trying to pick companies that um, we think have long-term pedigree. Also a bit of, bit of preservation of capital in terms of the way we think about the picks for that. Preservation and a bias towards income. As well. Indeed. Well, what we do know is that ISAs generally are still very much dominated by, by cash ISAs. You know, people putting in whatever spare cash they have into an ISA to get a bit of a tax-free return, but at a paltry interest rate. So 20, 28%, even if it only marginally beat the market, is still pretty spectacular. But as you say, we're looking for companies that over the longer term, investors that maybe aren't looking every day or every week at their holdings um, might benefit from. So obviously that's a bit of a stab in the dark, but we aim for reliable shares and a bit of a balance of companies in there. Mm, I noticed Harriet's Marks and Spencer. Indeed, from an income point of view, it's uh, it's pretty good, particularly uh, the shares yield in excess of 5% at, at the moment. And uh, if you look at the cash profile of M&S, which our tips editor, Algie Hall, has done in some detail that can be found online um, you will see that from a cash flow perspective it's an incredibly strong argument so that's why that's made it into this year's pile and next year we can talk about <laughs> next year we can talk about it last year my pick was uh, was jd sports which did incredibly well i'd just like to say right okay uh let's let's start before we move into results with seven days uh, big news this week, and there has been lots of big news. Uh, well, there's a couple of big new companies' news stories. One's around London Stock Exchange and its tie-up or not with Deutsche Börse, and that ran into a little bit of trouble this week, so we can talk about that. A little week. bit? A lot. It's not quite <laughs> dead yet. Um, but, yeah, we can delve into the details of that. And I suppose elsewhere, um, the very interesting company story this week is around the insurance companies that have suffered due to the calculation of the personal injury awards that they have to make to claimants. Um, and that really had a bit of a big impact. In some ways, we benefited from it in terms of workload because quite a few of the um, insurance companies deferred their results, which um, wasn't too bad for the writers in those particular always, sectors. Always welcome respite at company season. Yeah, provided uh, us a news story and took away a few results. So uh, welcomed. But, yeah, that was a big impact on that sector. 
sector. So that will be feeding through in our results analyses. But perhaps, yeah, we should start with LSE, which is a subject you wrote about in your column as well. Yeah, I mean, not not really in terms of the deal itself, um, which I haven't really been paying much attention to. I have to say, when Brexit or when the, the referendum vote happened, I kind of always thought this this could be in jeopardy here. And I think that's why some people are viewing this um, reason that they've given for the deal being almost off um, as perhaps a little bit of a scapegoat or perhaps not the real reason. Perhaps both sides actually are using the competition issues here to really put the mockers on a deal that really wasn't going to happen after the Brexit vote. The idea that um, a combined company of this central importance to the financial sector would have you know, a holding company in, in London that would be outside of the European Union, the UK leaving the European Union you can see why it really doesn't make sense. And from kind of London's perspective, there's risks to that too. So it's very much a European Union kind of deal that is struggle. But the reason that has been given, just to cover it, I suppose, is that MTS, which is a bond trading house um, that LSE owns, they are saying that the European Commission had, um, sorry, the antitrust authorities in Europe had requested that this be sold off as part of the deal. And they said, well, that's a small part of their um, overall revenue. It's important for their Italian operations, which they say is a more substantial part of their revenue. So being forced to sell it off would be um, a disproportionate remedy. And that on that basis, they can't. And they would actually struggle to then sell it off and run into problems in Italy in so doing. So they very much said that that's so dis- disproportionate that they don't see that the deal can really progress. Yeah, and it all sounds rather convoluted to me uh, for for a small Italian fixed interest trading house. When, when you know, when I look at the proposed tie up, I mean, what one exchanges have only been getting bigger and bigger and bigger over the years, and you know, to me, there comes a point where such scale is only beneficial to the exchange and and its shareholders themselves rather than the end customer. Uh, and you know, one one area where I think the, the regulators should have paid more attention, which is what I talk about in my editorial, is the uh, the data business side of things, the index creation. Because, you know, th- this is crucial to the nascent, I say nascent, it's been around for 20 years, but in, in financial terms, still still nascent, ETF industry. Exactly. And, you know, th- these these indices underpin ETFs. We have to pay them license fees for data we republish. It's, it's, it's a huge business and hugely important and only likely to become more so. The LSE already controls all the FTSE indices, the Russell indices uh, over in North America, and this would have brought stocks and uh DAX into its its portfolio as well. It, it, it's just huge. And when we first discussed this, actually, in this podcast studio, when the deal came out, I um, reiterated what they had said in the part of the rationale for the deal, which was that having greater scale would allow them to drive down costs for ordinary users of such products, which you at the time said, you know, that would be a first, that companies with a, then a greater, almost mon- monopolistic market share would then not increase fees, they would reduce them. I, I don't. I just don't think that that's likely to be the case. You know, and there there have been. I've not. I'm not the first person to have written this, but you know, there there are sort of growing grumbles within the ETF industry around the dominance of just a handful of index players uh, and the fact they can charge what they like. I just think in a deal that that, it, that is this political, um, then the consideration looking at how private investors and smaller investors are affected by it just gets pushed way down um, the register in terms of you know, the things, the risks that are being looked at here. There's it, the political indeed. angle, there's the regulatory angle, there's having clearing houses and where they are based in terms of the, you know, a very important part of our financial system is where trades are cleared. So there's huge amounts of uh, regulatory implications and then 
feeding into that, you have the whole relationship between uh, the UK and the European Union after we leave it. So it's very hard to see that they would focus on that. But to your point, there could have been some losers on that perspective. I suppose the only thing to say from the other side of it is th the rationale for, for that from shareholders' perspective is to be able to counter the other global index providers um, and to provide a kind of for Europe company that is important in all of these markets to be able to challenge some of the US players. And some people think an LSE on its own might actually then be vulnerable to a takeover. But then we've seen so many times that over the years and the political considerations don't change if anything they've intensified yeah not the first failed lse takeover that we've seen exactly right okay um what are we saying shareholders do i mean do we suspect another deal might come along quite quickly are we suggesting they hang on because there is hidden value in in the lse just as there was with unilever for example I think that there is a concern that the share price has a lot of expectation of the deal in it. So, yeah, the risk of holding on is that you get hit by that. We are still saying hold, though. I think we think that the company um, has huge amount of ongoing value. It's, it's active in the areas um, where the financial markets are growing, and we think it has great value. And then, obviously, a takeover could provide value or not, depending on how it happens for shareholders. So, yeah, we're not saying sell out now. Uh, we're saying wait and see. Okay, um, let's go to the seven days page, which uh, which Graham you you put together. There's been interesting stories on here. Uh, UK consumer confidence looking a bit wobbly. Yeah, and it's something we've been you know been suspected for the past couple of months. And Harriet's written written upon it uh, in her retail beat. The sense that consumer confidence is dipping, spending is dipped post Christmas, and just feels a bit more iffy on the high street at the moment. Is that, is that something you would agree with, Harriet? I mean, we wrote about the credit cycle quite recently. We did write about the credit cycle recently. We also wrote about the um, same consumer confidence index, which um, has been cited in seven days um, shortly after the Brexit vote last year, and it had plummeted then as well, and it really hasn't recovered since. There was a slight sort of um, uptick around the whole Black Friday and then into Christmas trading, but that's sort of to be expected. But once I feel people got a hang of the fact that price inflation was a real thing and that it was certainly going to happen into the new year i posited at the time that it you know christmas was even more of a last hurrah than it usually is um and i was met with a lot of um sort of cynicism from company bosses saying oh no that's i'm sure that's not the case and of course now they're they're eating those words mm. we we haven't had any retail results yet it's the wrong wrong time of year isn't it we, we're looking at december year ends at the moment whereas retailers tend to be 31st of January, End of January yeah, to capture the capture the January sales. They they do tend to be a bit later. We are getting some consumer facing industries though, where people have to hand over money for sort of frivolous um, outings or what have you. People like Merlin today, for instance, are out. We've had Revolution Bars this week, so frivolous outings. You know, going to the pub. <laughs> okay, a major part of life. <laughs> uh, I mean, shoot, let's we'll come back to news in a minute. Let's 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 do a couple of results while okay. we're here. Revolution Bars. Yeah. So it sells vodka bars. Yeah, and vodka revs. And if, rum uh, bars, which sound good to me. Yeah. Uh, how, do you pronounce the, how do you pronounce the other chain? Revolución de Cuba. Oh, superb. That's my it, Spanish A-level coming it, to the fore there. So we had Stephen Wilmot back <laughs> here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. bar. Uh, so what do, we, what do we think of this company? Well, we've had them on a buy for quite some time. They were my buy tip, actually, before I, uh, before I left the Travel and Leisure beat. Um, and they've done, they've done pretty well off it, actually, I have to say. Um, and this week's results were good, and they're going to accelerate the number of new openings they they do per year they'd previously guided to five they're now going to kick that up to six 
uh, because they're getting a good rate of return on investment, I should say. Um, I think it's about 38%. So, okay, yeah, it's uh, it's going well. And I, I like the management there. They're pretty disciplined, it would seem. Um, we've talked about this before with other companies like Jules and Hotel Chocolat. They take quite a prudent approach to how they expand, particularly in terms of things like leverage. Revolution Bars is in a net cash position still. So, yeah, lots to like. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. I, I mean, you know, you talk about new openings. What was it? Raised from? Five to six. Five to six. That sounds like discipline to me. Yeah, I mean, especially you know, when it, the analysts get excited about that and they say that this is, you know, something something positive. What, the small amount yeah. of openings? Oh, no, I, I completely agree. Um, I completely agree. Yeah. So, I mean, we've all seen it before, particularly when it comes to um, wet-led companies and I'm talking here more about the pubs obviously we've seen the dangers in the past of massive over leverage in order to finance expansion and how that can really go wrong once the cycle turns Um, and it seems that Revolution Bars is trying to stay out of that as much as possible the thing to watch out with them I think is when this lease liability change happens to the accounting standards they will have to put those leases back onto the balance sheet which at the moment don't really appear in a very clear way so but the balance sheet is pretty healthy there net cash 5 million not a huge number but it's not a huge number but they are involved in in leasehold property and the leases are not as short term as someone like card factory for instance which is sort of infamous now for how short those leases are these guys are into proper long-term leases they do have break clauses but they're into 25 year leases and they, so they haven't added that many i mean six isn't that many but they only have 66 sites so proportionally it is quite a yes, big yeah. improvement yeah no, but it's interesting you know it's a bar bar you would expect to stay in the same place for a while yeah you know they are a destination and i and a long lease makes sense in that respect a card shop we'll move move it to the next unit because yeah and these guys because of the premium kind of level that they aim at with a lot of their cocktails and a lot of their products um, particularly in the spanish branding their margins are typically quite high someone like card factory obviously their margins are pretty slim so um in terms of sort of longevity there um i'm a little more bullish okay i noticed right next to that result you have greg's i do have greg's yeah we downgraded them oh no yeah What's that matter? Well, it, I know. I know it's actually in the office. They was it their pack of sausage rolls that's still was. sitting there on the desk? Yeah, I think Alex. <laughs> Alex did try one, but uh, the rest of them I had to donate to the kitchen. The scuttlebutt method. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've uh, we've had Greg shares on a buy. They've sort of done okay. They went a bit sideways, and basically the analyst has now said that after a little bit of a sort of mini outperformance in the share price, the current rating looks quite full value um so we took a look, uh, look at it ourselves and what we delved into was really where it was trading to relative to our original entry advice where it was trading against its own history both on a short-term and a long-term average and sort of relative to the sector although that is a difficult metric because they are almost peerless in a way on the lse the was peerless griggs the peerless i think that's the first and last time you will ever hear that <laughs> But trying <laughs> trying to find a light for light business model is is quite difficult. Yes, for I, them. Know, I know. I know. Um, you know, they're food retailers, but they're not a supermarket. And they're yeah, as Ian Manage- I think yeah, was going to say, yeah, their outlook was was a little more conservative. They um they did hint at um a bit of pressure this year, competitive inflation, you know, all, all the sorts of things we've been hearing. Really. Yeah, I mean, looking at that uh, that results table, numbers all going in the right direction. They really are quite quite good actually. I, I mean, think uh, I think the analyst used the phrase the strategy is spot on. So it's not that they're finding fault with what Greg's are doing. I think they're just saying that actually where the share price is now, 
looks about right. So they don't know that they'd be rushing in, but they would hang on to the shares. And that's kind of what we've tried to say too. Moving decent, in, decent yield out of them. Mo- yeah. Moving into the on-the-go on format, is that a more competitive area? Because that's where a lot of the re- food retailers want to be. Yeah, absolutely. Um, they and But I think it's the right choice for them. They've also developed healthier ranges, which has worked really well for them, um, as well as hot drinks and breakfast has done well too. And the so, sausage rolls haven't done so well. No. Not in the office. <laughs> Not in this office. Um <laughs> And although although EPS is growing, as you say, the analyst said based on the forecast for EPS growth over the next few years, the shares the shares look about right. So it's not the sort of great entry point that it once was. A firm hold. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's uh, let's leap back to the news section because I know you wanted to talk about this insurance story. I must admit, Ian, it somewhat baffled me. Tell me what the hell is going on here, because the the insurers have not taken this lightly. No, it's uh, led to a big pain for them in terms of this year's results to state it as simply as possible when you get a please do (laughs) (laughs) when you get an injury award claim they try and calculate how much uh, interest you would make or or how much income you'd make over that over the lifetime you know over the the next 20 years the lifetime of your injury award yeah so they when they try and calculate the value of that money now they have to look at what that will kind of get you in a number of years time um and they have an official discount rate for this okay so so when you have when you are awarded an injury claim you are given a lump sum but that lump sum is meant to take into account how much money you need over a certain amount of time that it takes you to recuperate from the injury? Yeah. In the same way as you might with a pension liability. It's Fine. a similar similar thing. So life insurance companies are very used to this. Or so life a, insurance companies so a discount rate is applied? Yes. And the higher the discount rate, the, the lower the figure. So the lower the discount rate, and in fact, this is a minus, a negative uh, discount rate, the higher the figure you have to give now because you're assuming they're not going to make any money. In fact, they're all going to lose money over the over the period. So essentially, so, essentially the upfront award is much higher than it would have been had the discount rate been, been the, higher. Yeah, and because this is so mechanistic, then it impacts straight away on the company's profitabilities and the claims that they the the claims yes that they're paying out during that period. So it's had a big impact on the loss ratio or the combined operating ratio, which is the claims to income ratio um, for these companies. So actually, it led to a couple of them pushing back their year-end results um, releases um, and going away and doing the numbers. Some people say, well, it doesn't matter so much over the long term because they'll just pass it on in premiums to customers. I was going to say, we're just not going to see higher higher insurance premiums yes. for, for car insurance. And that's why there's been quite a lot of criticism about this. I wouldn't be surprised if the government steps back from it slightly. They're talking about reviewing the actual formula that goes into calculating the discount rate. It's another example, to state it simply, of low interest rates having a distorting effect in the economy. We know lo- low interest rates have been tougher for insurers anyway because they've pushed up the value of their long-term liabilities, thus look, making them look less solvent. They've also reduced the amount that insurance companies can make from their investments. And this is another example. Now, by calculating these injury awards in a lower interest rate environment, in this extraordinary low interest rate environment uh, that we all know has been a result of ultra-loose monetary policy and quantitative easing, that has, again, hurt insurance companies. So it's another example of the kind of strange monetary environment we have and the outputs of that. Did we see uh, any hit on share prices as a result of this? Yes, we saw a hit on share prices. I think it might be covered in the story, but it's, as you'd expect, on those that are most exposed to it. Some uh, companies, Eshore, for example, their shares actually went up on the day of the announcement. They have a low-risk approach to underwriting, and they actually have an allowance for a change in the discount rate to 0%. So, you know, if it was 2.5%, they had an allowance for if it went down to 0%. So they they are much more protected from it, uh, whereas 
some of the price comparison websites did well on the day of the announcement because the expectation is, as you say, premiums will go up, people will shop around more. So that emerging sector might again benefit. Um, but some of the more traditional insurers that haven't had the same kind of reserving approach um, have suffered. Okay. Right. So I look forward to a higher car insurance bill. Uh, luckily, I don't own any shares in the. In those companies. And if you want to know more about it, um, past my convoluted explanation, then when you get to the results analyses of those companies effective that are coming out over the next couple of weeks, it's very much baked into those. So we have Hastings, I think, in next week's issue. Um, and they have already stated this is how it affects the combined ratio. You might want to look through it in terms of trying to understand uh, the margins of the company because it's a one-off hit. Um, or you, yeah, you, you can take that view, but we will provide analysis to help you with that. Yeah, view. I mean, it's a very good example of of how rather than looking at an industry as a whole and sort of having a blanket approach to analysis, you really need to look beneath the surface of each of the individual companies within it, which is what we do. This is what you do. I mean, the most superficial way to look at insurance companies is that claims are bad for insurance companies, but actually insurance companies need claims so they can charge higher premiums in future. Um, so then actually looking at their underwriting standards and comparing them on that basis is really important and things like their margins. So it's something that Jonas Crossland, who covers the sector, is, does. Okay, uh, let's jump to tip updates because there is a very interesting story here which you covered this week. Harriet's uh, 32 Red, the uh, yeah. online bookie, uh, has had a pretty interesting takeover offer. And there's that kind of the backdrop is there's some other uh, results from the uh, the gambling sector this week. Let's let's start with t- 32 Red. Yeah, it's uh, it's a long term buy tip for us. My tip actually again. Good one. Um, and Good then one Bradley too. Bradley retipped it in December just before he left. And uh, anyway. That share price changed to date, baking in, um, obviously, the reaction to the deal news is up 47%. So premiums aside from the actual offer price, our readers who have followed that advice have probably done quite nicely out of it already. So you can automatically see an argument for sort of selling out and, and taking your lot and running with it. What I think is probably most interesting about this deal is that it sheds an awful lot of light on William Hill, which is another tip of Bradley's. Which was the result this week. And it was also the result this week. And he had really tipped that on the hope that obviously gambling had been going through a bit of a period of consolidation. Um, We'd seen Ladbrokes Coral and Paddy Power Betfair. And it was, you know, are these big companies going to join forces in order to sort of mitigate a host of challenges? And I think what's interesting about this deal is that it suggests that actually what these tie-ups have to include is some sort of element of fast online growth, mm-hmm. um, which obviously is 32 Red is an online pure play, so that feeds into that, obviously. And who's buying it? It's big, big Swedish bookie, is it? Yeah, it's the Unibet people. Um, it's Kindred, who is the actual sort of business going after it, but... Yeah, Unibet is the name that people will probably be um, more aware of. So we took a look at William Hill results and sadly they were pretty disappointing, particularly sort of in the online arena, which you would sort of hope that if you have a big juggernaut like William Hill that's got a big retail estate, you'd sort of hope that their foray into the online market would offset any weakness in traditional retail and that's not really happening. But they've never really got there, have they, with it? I know they've tried things over the years. There's been talk of various tie-ups. But, you know, William, William Hill is increasingly looking like the uh, the last person at the party who's sort of hanging around when everyone's gone paired off and gone home for the evening. We did describe it as the wallflower, I think, <laughs> in, the, in the original tip. Um, but it, the problem is it remains the wallflower and uh, that hasn't come through. Is it, is it that ugly? There are some things that, obviously, gamblers can struggle to mitigate, which is obviously customer-friendly results, which is what happened a lot in the final quarter of everyone last year. Knows that. everyone has that problem so the argument is that if it's effectively a level playing field when you look at these gamblers you have to sort of look at who is 
the most sort of defensive play, I think. And William Hill is just not that for me. I think they've got a lot of work ahead of them. And, you know, readers of the magazine will see that in the ICVO, I directly reference the 32 red deal as a reason to downgrade it. It's funny because not that long ago, William Hill was seen as the star of the show and, and how, how the world changes very quickly, mm. um, especially when consolidation is taking place yeah. in the industry. I mean, I it's... covered gambling three years ago now, and it was such a different marketplace. We hadn't really even had the full introduction of point of consumption yet, and that was sort of the big thing that everyone was talking about. Interestingly, actually, we had a reader point out to us this week that Labbrooks has also lost quite a big VAT settlement this week, which they have failed to address as yet, nor have the analysts. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how they deal with that. But tax is always an issue. Customer-friendly results are always an issue. And regulation as a whole is, is a real bugbear. So if you're then failing to grow on a sort of organic and innovative front as well, I'm not really sure what's left for you. Indeed. Another change of management? Another change of management. Well, that's that's another point, actually, is that, you know, they have been through a couple of changes of management already. And so now the competitors that they're facing are companies like Paddy Power, Betfair, that kind of do it all in terms of being do it all. vertically and, integrated. And it's very hard to compete with that kind of... Yeah, and Paddy Power has always been the market leader. I mean, well, for as long as... As it always. I mean, you know, William Hill and Labricks were the market leaders over here. Paddy I'm going to say in recent digital in, his, digital-led in, history. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Paddy Power is the one to beat. And I just don't think these guys come anywhere close. Place. No, serious work needed there. Yeah. They're probably going to get taken out. At some yeah, point. I was going to say they pro- they probably will, but we haven't said sell. You know, we haven't said get out of it. This is you know this is going to the dogs. This is going to hell in the handbasket. We've just we've just taken them off the kind of oh this is an exciting takeover because we're not quite sure who would be buying them for what reason. And if they do get bought, I'd be I wouldn't be surprised if the premium was less than generous. Okay, so let's move from the uh, the latent orient of the uh, the <laughs> online gambling world to uh, to rugby uh, and the uh, the Italy of uh, of the Six Nations world, who themselves have often been discussed as being uh, ripe candidates for for a right shake up of, uh, of of Six Nations rugby. And Ian, that's the, uh, the the analogy you've chosen this week for your column. I was wondering if it would get past you, and it has, which I'm glad. No, I. I uh, Obviously, many people will have been talking about Italy and their anti-rucking tactical... I watched that game like everybody else. I didn't have a clue what yeah. was going on. <laughs> it, was, it was fascinating. You know, it was absolutely fascinating. Um, um, but the reason I uh, brought up Italy um, was that actually there's a, a rugby team, uh, European rugby team, that is above Italy in the world rankings, but doesn't figure in the Six Nations, and that's Georgia. Uh, and Georgia is uh, this is sounding increasingly ten- tenuous. If you read my piece, it's not quite as tenuous, or perhaps it is. Uh, but Georgia is a country that is moving up the rankings in terms of the profile for London investors. So we've recently, last year, there was um, a, a bank, which is their major bank, TBC Bank, took a premium listing. It had previously um, listed global depository receipts in London. But now if you're a banking investor in uh, London, you can invest in TBC Bank or you can invest in Bank of Georgia, which is its biggest rival, or you can invest in Georgia Healthcare that was spun out of um, the Bank of Georgia uh, with great success. So I had a look at Italian banks versus Georgian banks. Um, and obviously everyone knows of the Italian problem. banks are as good as their, their rugby team, is that right? <laughs> yeah, they've got lots of holes in their defences as well, <laughs> I think it's fair to say. Um, but yeah, everyone knows what, uh, the headline problems with uh, Italian uh, banks. Um, but with Georgian banks, there's quite a strong valuation case and growth case being made for these businesses by um, s- certain prominent brokers. Um, and that's what I looked at a little bit in this piece. If you look at the return on equity, um, more than 20% loan, group, loan books growing by around a fifth a year. Um, 
a stranglehold on a market. I think combined market share in terms of gross loans is, I've got it in here, but it's around 70% or something. It's very mm-hmm. large um, barriers to entry they have in that market. So if you just purely looked at it on valuation, um, you might say great companies to get involved in. Um, and I looked at a couple of the reasons why that might not be the case, principally currency and political. I was going to say, it's Georgia. It's Georgia. And I, I love this uh, this quote there from uh, Georgia Healthcare's boss. We're in a tough, tough neighbourhood. Yeah. Which, which is true. And, I, you know, I guess as a UK investor, you'd look at these companies and say, yeah, you know, on fundamental terms, you know, in, in terms of the numbers, they look great. But it's Georgia and we don't we don't understand Georgia. I, you know, it, 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 I guess the reputation would be this is a place that was involved in, in conflicts not that long ago. Exactly right. Well, I mean, in some ways, that conflict is still ongoing. Uh, the Russo-Georgia war, the latest <laughs> conflict between the two. And the other major thing, which is linked to that, but it w- is the currency. So a decline in the currency can create all kinds of problems. They have high, growing inflation, and that's an issue for the economies. They've got a couple of major problems, inf- uh, currency and inflation, and they are linked, actually. So the problem is with if their currency falls, a lot of their loans are denominated in dollars. So mm-hmm. the ability of their Georgian customers to pay those loans declines. That's a big worry. Well, this, hap- this happened during the uh, the euro crisis when you had a lot of, uh, for example, Eastern European loans denominated in, in euros or Swiss francs. And it was a disaster. Yeah. And it's a big problem. And then if you have uh, the currency declining and then you have inflation coming into the economy, if that pushes the central bank to lift lift interest rates, that then also impacts on the credit quality. uh, And it also impacts on their ability to grow new business because at higher interest rates, people are less able to take out loans. So there are a couple of reasons. And if you look at inflation in Georgia, it's currently growing to close to the central bank total for the for this year. And although there are some one off reasons for that, they increase some excise taxes. Uh, If that were to continue and the central bank had to take stronger actions and it has already in, kind of intervened on the currency side, then there could be serious problems that are baked into this valuation. So the only reason, I know, and if you look at some of the brokers, they do look at risk-adjusted valuations. But I think as a London investor, you have to be quite confident you're ultimately making a call on the future of the Georgian economy. It's a macro call. You're making yeah. a macro call yeah. and you're making a geopolitical call on whether Georgia as a country in a tough neighbourhood has yeah, it has a viable future, it has a stable future, I suppose. So those are big calls to have to make. I, I, I think it's quite interesting in itself and, and the story of, of Georgia and its attraction as, a, as an investment destination. And a rugby for, team. And a rugby team, of course. But but actually, it kind of brings us back to a story uh, that, that you wrote this week, Harriet, on uh, the IPO process in mm. London. So, you know, this is, this is there has long been some contention about, about the way that, that large IPOs work and, and the way that certainly analysts are allowed to, to comment on companies potentially coming to market, of which TBC Bank is is one uh, recent example, and it's going to change. And and I guess you know these changes are designed to make it more attractive for companies from overseas jurisdictions like Georgia and others to list in London. Yeah, and it's great news for retail investors as well because the upshot of the story is that ultimately they'll be given much more information ahead of the IPO than they currently are given, and. By information, what I really mean is independent information. Mm. At the moment, um, the information you tend to get fed is from um, people close to the deal. um, And actually, people involved in the deal very often are prohibited altogether from publishing any kind of report um, because of current rules. So the information you get is from people who don't have the same access to management, but it's all a bit sort of woolly and no one really knows sort of what's going on. And at the moment, the FCA is saying that that is not 
good enough and that basically independent analysts should have the same level of access to management and to advisors that people connected to the deal do currently and therefore they'll be able to produce research that is much more thorough but still independent. Which is all well and good from a private investor's perspective and obviously the IT as a title will welcome more transparency and it will make our jobs easier. There is an argument though that it will impact on the amount of companies that come to the market. You can make the argument from both sides. As you say John you could say that more transparency it might make it easier for companies but companies having to let unconnected analysts in to look at their businesses that might be a bit of an impediment to companies That's bringing true. them to market and this feeds into another change but, then, but if that were the case if they were really worried about independent analysts casting their eyes over their business and that was enough to put them off coming to london then well perhaps we don't want to invest in them mm. well no exactly right so it's, but also investors want a choice of companies uh, coming to the market so that's the only reason I bring in something else which is that at the moment the FCA is also looking at the requirements for a premium listing in London and that is very very dry even drier than this but why that's important is that they might tweak it so you don't as property companies you don't have to have so much track records to get premium listing in London you need more um, past like financial information you need to meet certain hurdles but they're very conscious that very, a lot of companies are choosing to come to market in other countries, especially looking at the emerging tech sector. There's that funding gap. We've got to try and convince more companies to come to market. So they've always got a balance as a regulator between how easy and how difficult they make it for companies to come through and the kind of information that companies can provide, the voting structures, that the share class structures at the moment. If you have a dual listing of voting and non-voting shares, you can't have a premium listing. So the, all these things, it's very interesting that they're, they're trying to keep us as an attractive destination to raise capital, and that's centrally important, and obviously our readers want to be able to choose. But to your point, you've also got to protect the end investors from companies that really shouldn't be coming to market if they haven't got that track record or if there are serious deficiencies. Yeah, indeed. It's the eternal balancing act of, of the regulator. And uh, I don't envy keeps them. Keeps them busy. It does keep them busy. Well, the clock is ticking. And I, I feel we've only barely touched the, the size of this enormous magazine uh, this week. As I say, it's plenty of results, plenty of news that we haven't discussed, plenty of, of features, including a great feature. We're, Share Padder back. I've done a great feature on free cash flow this week, talking, you know, which which is interesting in light of what we recently said about Marks and Spencers mm-hmm. uh, in this podcast. Um, so yeah, let's call it a day because uh, I, I think I would have to encourage people to go off and, and pick up the magazine to really to really get a get a feel for, for what a busy week it's been on the markets. It's almost a hundred pages if you include the supplement it's, this week. It, yeah, it's glorious. Massive. It's almost as big as our Christmas issue, and for for the for the small price of four pound ninety. So uh, thank you, Harriet. Thank you. And thank you, Ian. Thank you, Graham, over in the control room. 50 bright ISO ideas plus 75 results and all sorts of other uh, shenanigans. Pick up the magazine, All Good News Agents, or get online uh, and subscribe. Uh, and obviously tune in to the Personal Finance Podcast, which uh, will discuss the ISO ideas. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.